This episode contains depictions of violence that some may find triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. I have to send you this video. Um, recently, we've noticed that, I don't know if I told you, but Fitz's energy level has been like insanely oh, yeah. high, right? And we just figured like, man, when we adopted him, he was such a chill, like laid back cat. And now that we've been giving him these antibiotics to help, you know, the <laughs> swelling in his feet, now suddenly he has all this energy. <laughs> and you probably- wanted something laid back. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, we. I mean, I know you love him. But. We love him. We're still gonna keep him. He's still like a really awesome cat. Uh, he's just yeah. not as like lazy as we thought he was. <laughs> but he's like, you know, his feet are getting better, and he has this new lease on life. So I, like a mad woman, went on the internet. I'm like, I need to get toys that don't require us to play with him. Uh huh. Because we play with him with a laser pointer. He loves a good fish pole. Um. And yeah, because he started getting into like destructive scratching when he wants to be entertained. And I'm like, dude, I already just like played with you for legit an hour. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, to get attention. So I got one of those toys that has like the three tracks with the balls. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure if he was going to go for it. Um, but I think he liked it. I just sent you <laughs> the video. It's so cute. I mean, I have to say that's like reminds me so much of Domino. She was so chill until she got over her sickness and then mm-hmm. she was just nuts. And <laughs> no matter how much we played with her, it wasn't enough. That is why we ended up with Bishop. <laughs> oh, he's going to play with that for hours. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Because legit, like I can't keep <laughs> up with him and I'm home all day. Yeah. But, you know, oh, also, that's so cute. But also, you know, he did just go a whole week without me being at home because, you know, I wasn't right. here. So Gavin would go into work and he would be home alone all day. And that's not what he was used to for the first five weeks of his, you know, right. life with us here. Um, yeah. So I don't know if like he just has all this pent up energy, but I'm pretty sure he's just found like he's gained this energy now that he's feeling better. And oh, man. So I can't wait to hear what you have for true crime. Yeah. And I actually like speaking of videos, I don't have a video that goes with this. I have I came across it and I was like, no way is this for real. It's not for real. It's a little it's on brand for our topic. Okay. But I just thought I'd play it so that everyone can hear because I was dying laughing. A 17-year-old from Sacramento, California, went missing. Since then, her two best friends, Katie Clements and Megan Cleary, have not rested for a moment in aiding the search effort. Katie and Megan are here with us this morning. Thank you for having us. Welcome to you both. Now, I know this uh, is a very difficult time, but if you could say something to Janelle right now, what would it be? Um, that we miss you, and we're looking for you. And Steffi P from biology is pregnant. Oh my god, yeah. I mean, she says that she's not, but she's like totally wearing sweaters in May. Uh, tell so- us how you've been helping to spread the word about Janelle's disappearance. I know you've started a. Oh wait, that's so that's like a spoof or? 
Yeah, it's it's not a real thing. Oh, okay. I was going to say, like, <laughs> that, that must be a prank. Like, I can't. It can't be real. Because at first I was like, wait, what? Um, <laughs> the plot It's thickens. like an onion news kind of thing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But I was like, wait a second. Someone from Sacramento's missing? Like, what happened? Like, that's, that's right there. Like, what's yeah. going on? Yeah. We didn't miss anything. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just thought it would be a good opener to, you know, true crime, which is yeah. never a fun topic. Well, yeah. Always intriguing, um, never fun. Yeah. In- never really entertaining, but it's, I don't know. Like, I would love to get to okay. the bottom of true crime psychology. Let's be real, though. True crime entertains people. That's just like a matter of fact. Um, it does. Like the fact that people die or get harmed or do crime isn't entertaining, but I think it's just that morbid human curiosity of how p- far people will go. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think there's different people that are fans of true crime that fall into different categories where there are those that are truly entertained by it and those that will, they want to learn. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, you know, sure. it's kind of like listening to an informational podcast versus maybe a humorous podcast where it's like, I just want to laugh and like, they're truly entertaining me right now. Yeah. Versus maybe it's like a historical podcast where, you know, maybe the the way it's delivered is entertaining, but really it's about the information. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> but. For my topic, I decided to stay on my kick of survivors. Ooh, I love that. Because it makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will say the story does still deal with death, um, unfortunately. But the main person in this does not die. So okay. I'm covering uh, the story of Crystal Searles. Okay. Never heard. Nothing comes to mind when I hear that name. Okay. Which is interesting because, and I'll get to why it's a little interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also why I wanted to tell her story, which again, I'll get to. But okay. um, I'll just kind of dive in here. So Crystal Searles, um, on the night of December 31st, 1999, 10-year-old Crystal Searles was staying at a family friend's house in Del Rio, Texas with her seven-year-old sister while they waited for their family to move with them from Kansas. Now, up to this point, I didn't actually write this in my notes because this was like the last piece of information I came across Yeah, that I think just gives a good background to Crystal. Um, Her parents, when she was very, very, very young, they were involved with drugs. And it got to a point where her mom decided she didn't want to be involved with them anymore. The, the drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, so she left the family to go get clean. She knew okay. that's what she had to do. She yeah. divorced the dad. And then at that point, Crystal and her um, her sister, they lived with their dad, who was still using, mm. um, and I believe dealing drugs as well. And Yikes. so Crystal kind of grew up as being the caretaker. Took care of her sister. I'm sure she sure took care of her dad. The house. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was kind of known as 
Like, she wasn't the popular girl at school. I think she even referred to herself as, like, the stinky kid because she didn't get to bathe regularly. Her clothes often didn't match. Um, And then eventually her mom, after she got clean, came back and picked up her and her sister. And she was ready to kind of have this new life with them. Uh, Meanwhile, her dad was still using. And he eventually was actually arrested um, and was in prison at this point. Okay, gotcha. Serving time for for um, and this is I think possession December, and dealing. This is December thirty first, nineteen ninety nine. So Y two K, baby. Yeah. Yep. Right around that time, <clears throat> and um, so they were making a move to go to K- Kansas, but she and her sister were staying with this family mm-hmm. that they knew, um, which was I think a household of like six people that lived in a trailer. So that's where they are. Um, Crystal was staying in a room with her, with a friend, 13-year-old Katie Harris, who was the daughter of the family, Mm -hmm. um, while her sister slept in a separate room. Okay. Now, this night, the girls went to bed somewhat late. Um, There's no mention of anyone doing, like, New Year's Eve-type celebrations. This was just kind of like another night, I guess. Or at least that just wasn't important to like share anywhere Mm -hmm. um which there are numerous you know if you look up her name there are numerous uh um like news reports and things like that about what happened after the fact and all that okay but nothing mentions new year's eve just this date um so they went to bed fairly late and early in the morning like still nighttime but Mm -hmm. like after midnight obviously Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um a man broke into the Harris's trailer home through a window. Uh-oh. He was armed with an 11-inch butcher knife <gasps> and went into the room where 13-year-old Katie and 11-year-old Crystal were sleeping in a bunk bed. Oh, no. And it this was a bunk bed that it wasn't, like, flush against the wall where there was, like, only one way to get into the bed. It was, like, kind of out. So, like, their heads were – the wall was on their heads. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So they had room on either side. Um, So they – he went in the room where they were sleeping in their bunk beds. Uh, Crystal was on the um, top. Okay. While Katie was on the bottom. (gasps) So he went in. He laid down next to uh, Katie in the bottom bunk and, I guess, began sexually assaulting (gasps) her. Oh. Um, apparently this is where Katie, it's kind of, I've heard a couple different reports. She gets up at some point, whether he gets her up or she gets up. Um, he ends up stabbing her a total of 16 times. Oh my God. And ultimately slits her throat. (gasps) Wow. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just kind of getting right into the worst part of it. Yeah. Um, this is why we put a content warning. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Ahead of our spooky episodes. Very needed for this. Mm-hmm. Um, Shit. So that happens to Katie. And then Crystal, upon hearing her friend scream, wakes up and she's kind of looking around. Um, she never fully sits up because the light's on. So she's kind of able to see. She doesn't sit all the way up. It's kind of like she kind of just props like her shoulders and head up. Right. A bit. Um. 
And she could see that there was a man at the end of the bed. She saw that he had a scruffy, long, dark, curly hair. And he also had a like a big, long, bushy beard that, as she put it, took over his whole face. So just like big, bushy. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry if you heard me burp. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> sorry. Just in case. I'm sorry. Um, she also noted that as she like scanned his face, that his eyes were just dark and mean. Mm. So immediately identified that this was not a a, a good obviously person. someone who shouldn't be there, but not a good person, not yeah. doing good things, bad intentions. And then she saw that Katie had blood on her, oh. and that he had a knife in his hand, and he was holding he had the knife in one hand, and he was holding his other hand, um, across her mouth. So the knife, I guess, he was holding to her throat, the other mm-hmm. hand across her mouth, mm-hmm. um, and then she watched. As he cut her throat. Oh, my God. And she then fell to the ground. So he did that. However, he didn't realize that someone was on the top bunk. But as he was getting ready to leave, he opened the bedroom door and was about to turn the light off when he looked back one last time and spotted Crystal looking at him. Fuck. Crystal tried to move away from him as he approached, meaning she, like, tried to scoot to, like, the other side of the bunk just to get mm-hmm. whatever distance she could. Yeah. Um, but he just very quick, he just reached over and cut her throat. Oh, my God. Wait, what? Yeah. It and was she just kind of like, you're this? there. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Now, I don't think it really dawned on her exactly what had happened at that point. She lay there uh-huh. after that because he just did it and left. Oh my! It wasn't God. like he checked. He just kind of was like, "I all right." So he was just um, that, so Crystal. That was just like getting rid of a witness. Yes, he didn't exactly assault her as well, Mm-mm. at least sexually. No, just it's, that. I mean, still, that's horrible. Holy right. crap! After her, you know, watching everything too. So yeah, yeah. Um, she laid there as he turned back around, turned the light off, and shut the door. Oh my god! And she remained still for a while while she basically just her mind started like running through like had he been to the other rooms in the house? Did he harm the rest of the family? Is everyone else dead? Like she didn't know, right? Um, well, any of that? Four other people. <clears throat> yeah. So she then, once she realized he was gone or maybe just not in the house, she got on her hands and knees Mm. and off the, I mean, she got off the bunk bed and then Mm -hmm. crawled across the floor where she found her friend Katie. Mm. And at this point, Katie was making like a a gasping or choking type noise. Uh huh. And so she wanted to comfort her friend. So she laid by her side. She began rubbing her back. But this was when she realized she couldn't speak. Oh. She was wanting to tell her that, you know, everything was going to be okay, but she couldn't because mm. her not only her windpipe had been slashed, but also her vocal cord had been nicked gotcha. when he slashed her throat. And so she's laying by her friend, realizing this, just trying to comfort her. And then eventually Katie becomes silent. And this is when Crystal realizes that she needs to get out of the house and she needs to find help. So shoeless and in pajamas, she 
she basically gets outside. She sees a neighbor's house that has the light on. Uh-huh. Whether it was on purpose or they forgot, it was on. And that was her goal. Like, I want to get to that house. Um, and she didn't run at this point. She she says she slowly walked to their house very carefully. Um, but when she got there, she began banging as hard as she could on the door. Um and was completely helpless to respond to the man who was behind it asking who's there. Because he asked several times, very demanding, oh, you know, who's there. And she couldn't, she say, couldn't anything. say anything. No. <sighs> Thankfully, though, at this point in time, he did open the door. Oh. I feel like most people these days, they'll call the cops before yeah. that. But he opened the door um, and immediately called 911 when oh. he saw her. Um. And he, like, I listened to a brief portion of that call. He basically just said, I have a little girl with me who came to my door. She's covered in blood. You know, send someone as soon as you can. And they came very quickly. They rushed her to the hospital. Um, Her mom was notified immediately who came as quick as she could. Um, It was really sad was at this point. Even though she was in the room and she laid with her friend, she didn't realize that Katie was dead. Or at least it hadn't hit her. So she kept asking her mom if Katie was okay. Trying to ask her. Yeah. Which her mom at that point didn't want to say. In a later interview, but like still as a child, so like shortly after this, um, she still had, you know, like a bandage on her throat and everything. Um, Crystal mentioned, you know, what it was like at that point. She said, this is a quote from her. It hurt a little bit, meaning the throat slashing. Yeah. Um, I think that Katie, she helped me through everything. Her soul came up and like stayed with me. Oh, oh my God. It's going to make me cry. Oh, I was crying while I was writing my notes. It was, it was rough. She's an amazing little girl though. I mean, she's older now. Yeah. She's two years younger than me. Wow. Um, so she goes to the hospital. They get her into surgery to fix it all up. As soon as she wakes up from surgery, she's like, I'm ready. I want to tell whoever I need to exactly what I saw. Let me tell them now. And her mom had to basically be like, you need to wait for the police and the detectives to get here first before you start doing all that. Um, and they came. And she provided enough of a description that they were able to um, – they got this a decent sketch artist who quickly made a sketch and Crystal basically said the sketch was so perfect because um, it looked just like him. And they were very quickly able to get a lineup of people that looked like him. And um, while still in the hospital, she picked him up out of the lineup, pointed right at him. Wow. And it turned out to be a man named Tommy Lynn Sells. So... The hospital wasn't in Del Rio. It was some distance away. I think it may have been San Antonio, but I could be wrong. Okay. Um, but anyway, the police made their way back to Del Rio to go pick up Tommy Lynn Sells because he was a, a, a suspect at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, when they ran his name, they realized there were already several accusations against him for other crimes. So oh, kind of ups mm. the likelihood that this is the man. Yeah. 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 They get to his house. At around 5.30 in the morning. And when they go to knock on his door, the the door is actually already, like, unlocked and slightly open. Oh. So they just go in. The door's open. They can go in. 
and he's just standing right inside the doorway. Well, okay. And as soon as they step in there, he states, I'm glad I finally got caught. I was tired of doing this. Wow. And then they arrested him. I don't know how he knew that he was going to get caught. I Maybe he realized that that little girl could have survived and was just like, well, this is it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. But he was ready. Wow. Um, they very quickly were able to confirm the murder weapon as that 11-inch butcher knife, which was recovered near his home. He told them where to find it. I guess he tried to throw it away after the crime. Mm-hmm. But once he was caught, he was like, yep, here's where it is. And police noted that it had been sharpened so many times that the blade was actually incredibly thin. Oh, fuck. And so you have to, like, sharpen a knife for, like, a really long time for that to happen. So he's had this knife for a while. And what has he used it for all this time? We'll get to that. Fuck. Now, Crystal, this was, I included this just because it, it was honestly heartbreaking. And yeah. I just had to. But um, she didn't see her neck immediately after, like, being in the hospital and all that. While she was recovering. She was on a walk with her mom, you know, still hooked up to the IV and everything. And she stopped at a water fountain to get some water. And that's where she saw the reflection of her neck. Uh-oh. Um, and it kind of led to, like, I, I, I would have thought she'd immediately freak out. But it actually led to a really nice, poignant conversation between her and her mom where they oh. talked about how lucky she was to... To not only just survive, but that whoever this man is, he he can't do it again. Yeah, because she she survived and now he's caught. Um, and th- there was like a little interview I found where they kind of discussed that, and I thought well, that's not what I was expecting, but I just thought how strong of a little ten year old to to come to that realization, right? And you know, and to have a mom who's not just you know fuck that man and fuck what happened like it's such a grown-up conversation i don't know um i just think it speaks a lot to how strong of a human being she is yeah so back to cells he was surprisingly cooperative once caught he was brought in he made a full confession he was more than okay taking police on a thorough walkthrough of the crime scene, explaining in detail every bit of that night. Um, they confirmed that a window to the house had indeed been left open, which is how he got in. Mm. So he didn't like break in. I mean, he did, but like he just slipped through a window. Right. Um, and he did confirm that he first saw one room where a girl had been sleeping, which I believe was uh, Crystal's sister. Mm-hmm. So he saw her in there, but then went to the bunk, the room with the bunk beds. So he chose to skip that room and go to the other room, which is just eerie to me to know that he could have made a different decision. And killed an even younger girl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he detailed what happened in Katie's room. Yeah. And... They basically were able to make the assumption that in this particular case, the motive was sexual assault. Um, And this was 
partially due to the fact that he had friends and acquaintances with the Harris family. Oh. Meaning that he knew of them and he knew of Katie and they believe that he targeted Katie, which is why he went straight to her room. Ew. Yeah. Um, He, during the walkthrough, made a comment that he did actually think about killing all six people in the trailer, but ultimately decided against it. Which, at that point, as, like, you're caught, why do you need to, like, thanks for being honest. I feel it's not going to be in his favor, but, like. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad he's being honest, but, yeah, it's very interesting. He's, like, not really looking out for himself, it sounds like. No. He not like, even just a like he bit. said, he's like, I'm so glad I got caught. It sounds like this was like a a compulsive thing. Right. Not that that really like saves him. No, but not at all. But it's interesting yeah. that he has that where he he felt like he couldn't help himself mm-hmm. and tried to when whenever he could. But yeah, yikes. That's yeah. almost like scarier what's even scarier though is he then made a comment to the police Uh saying well i guess you want to know about the other murders Ah! i was wondering when that would come up yeah he confessed confessed he confessed to a list of murders making it very clear that he was actually a serial killer. Wow. Um, the next nine months were spent with him working with police and detectives to uncover the additional homicides, which were a total of 22 murders. I mean, I'm so glad that he was cooperative. Like, it sounds like he was very cooperative mm-hmm. because not like for him but just for the families of those victims exactly, yeah. to get that closure. Yeah. Um in July of 1985 uh Sells was 21 and he was working in Missouri. Um I believe at a carnival where he met 28-year 28-year-old Ina or Enna Court. E N A. Is that Enna or Ina? Oh, I I would say Anna, but I could be wrong. Yeah. We met her and her four-year-old son, Rory. Um, she invited Sels to her home that evening where they had sex, fell asleep, and then she woke up. Oh, he woke up to find her stealing from his backpack. Uh-oh. He then beat her to death with her son's <gasps> baseball bat and oh then God. murdered her son because <gasps> the child was a witness. Oh, oh my God. As far as I could find, this was the earliest incident of murder. Okay. Um, that he did. So they were found three days later, at which point he had left town. He is also linked to the known crimes of uh, the murder of Suzanne Quartz in May of 1987. Um, oops, sorry, Bishop. Um, November 17th, 1987, members of four members of the Dardine family in Illinois. September 11th, 1988, the murder of Melissa Trembley um, in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Uh, 1989, murder of a co-worker in Texas. 
October 13th, 1997, murder of a 10-year-old, Joel Kirkpatrick, in Lawrenceville, Illinois. October 15th, 1997, murder of Stephanie Mahaney, near Springfield, Missouri. April 18th, 1999, murder of 9-year-old Mary Beatrice Perez, in San Antonio, Texas, um, which is a murder for which he was ultimately convicted of. Mm-hmm. May 23rd, 1999, sexual assault and murder of Haley McCone in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, and then the the murder of Katie Harris. So that's what's known um, publicly. What did he do for a job that he was traveling? That like That's like a clear kind of path of travel from like south to northeast and back to texas right you know to be totally honest there is a like wikipedia page for him and like um he's on a a website that's kind of about serial killers i honestly didn't want to look too into him i know that's like a little different than you know how thorough we usually are with our research but i was just kind of like (laughs) i didn't i don't know i didn't want to look too into him Okay. Um, I just wonder if, like... But it's out there. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, he was some sort of, like, was he a truck driver or, you know, did he travel for work often or... Because it's, like, this clear path almost as northeast as Massachusetts, but, like, Illinois, Missouri, um, I think you said Kentucky, Texas. Like, it, 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 it travels northeast and always comes back to Texas. So I wonder if, like, the, is there a certain, like, work route that he's always taking? And then he's just, like, conveniently, like, looking for people to assault and murder on the way? I want to say that I read at one point that he was homeless. So he may have been, like, hitchhiking back yeah. and forth. Or maybe there's, like, a major freeway that goes through and kind of leads through all those right. states or something. I don't know. Which I wouldn't I doubt. Interesting. Um I do know he was born in Oakland, California. Oh. Okay. So I do know that. Um, Oh, yeah. So he was homeless and hitchhiked and train hopped from 1978 to 1999. So that would make sense. He had short-term manual labor and barber jobs. Drank heavily, abused drugs. And was in prison several times. If he train hopped a lot, maybe he like knew his route. Just up and down, yeah, up and down. That would make sense. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> they spent nine months uncovering all these different homicides and murders. Um, and then eventually, at the end of those nine months, it was time for him to go to court, mm-hmm. go to trial. Yeah. Now, Crystal, at this point, was back in Kansas. But... When it was time for court, she was ready to go back to Del Rio um, and testify against him. And she even stated that she was ready. She wanted to do it. At that point, she was 11. But she was just, she was dead set. I want this man to go to prison. I mm-hmm. can do this. Gosh, she's so um, amazing. She, she really is. I'll try and find like some pictures of her then and now too for this um because i know there's plenty now this was going to be her first time seeing him since the night of the murder whoa 
So that was a big deal. That was a big conversation that her mom had with her, the detectives had with her, um, mm -hmm. her lawyer had with her. Mm -hmm. um, and the leading up to the trial, um, the several nights before then, when she came back into town, she actually got to stay with the detective and his family because he had two young daughters around her age and he thought that that might make her feel more comfortable Aww. being back in that that town and whatnot. Um, but what he recalls is during the night, she would wake up screaming Aww. in the middle of the night. Um, I don't know that she's ever spoken about that, but he mentioned it in an interview. Yeah. And I'm I'm not who would be surprised by that. I'm not. I would be surprised that that wouldn't be the case. Yeah. Um, and I also thought that you know how she is so strong, but obviously as a strong person, you can still be dealing with PT PTSD in that way. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. Now, despite you know having nightmares, obviously about what had gone on, she still reiterated that she felt ready um that she she felt like she held a power in being able to go and testify that he may have felt like he conquered her in some way by killing her or attempting to kill her but she wanted to go to court and have no she said knowing that she was the reason that he was there on trial she liked that. She liked the the power over him and that yeah. feeling of power that it gave her. She really mm -hmm. was into that. that kind good. Of, <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm so glad she got that, that she was able to mentally reach that place. Um, And she also knew she had to do it for Katie. Oh, yeah. Oh, her friend. Yeah. So when she was called down to testify... They gave her the option where normally the where she would walk down to do that would be kind of like right down the middle and past him. So we're like, you can do that, but if you don't want to walk past him, we can take you through a door that comes out right by where the booth is to like sit and testify. And she was like, nope, I want to go right by him. I want him to see me walk by. God, and this kid's a badass. Even as like there's some, there's like a short footage of her like walking down. She even glances back at one point in his direction, which I was like, ooh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> giving him the stink eye. Oh. I love it. And she walked in like like confidently, like I know what I'm here to do. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, she does get up there, but while testifying, that's when her nerves began to kick in a bit. Um, she even recalls. As she's answering questions, he will not look up from the desk and his leg is just shaking the whole time. So her nerves start to get to her because I think for a number of reasons could have happened. You know, yeah. she is finally faced with him. She's also um, maybe 11. She's, she's 11. <laughs> um, and she was expecting to be like, yeah, you see me in this place of power and he won't even look at her. Yeah. So. There's one point where, you know, she's describing what happened and they have to ask who did these things. Right. And she then had to point to him, mm -hmm. which she was happy to do. But you can see in like court footage, like her hand and finger shaking as she points. Yeah. Because the nerves are getting to her. Yeah. Um, and then eventually she began to cry as she's explaining everything. Aww. And at one point 
where they're asked because they have to ask the details and she's having to go through those details again. She gets to a point where she she can't continue to answer. She's just crying Aww. and it's too hard for her. So they call for a short recess. Um, they give her 15 minutes. She gets a lot of comfort and some pep talks from um, her lawyers and her mom. Basically, like letting her know they understand, but like she's almost done. They just mm-hmm. need to get through it. And this yeah. is important. Um, and so after those 15 minutes, she, she was ready again. Um, and she got back out there and they had her, I mean, it wasn't just questions. They had her show the jury her throat to see like where he had cut it. They had her lay down on a table to show like how she sat, sat up. So it's like really reliving. Wow what happened but she made it through it um once the prosecution was done the defense chose not to question her and he the defense lawyer simply stated you're a brave young woman no more questions that was it and she felt very comforted she felt like he was on her side yeah which Really, in this case, the defense had no defense. Like, they're literally have, there as, like, a formality because this dude already confessed to exactly. everything. Their only job at that point was to maybe get him, keep him from death row. Like, as a defense lawyer, that's that's sure. the, the least you can yeah, try to do in like, that case. Like, he's going to get a bad sentence. Let's see if we can lessen it in some exactly. sort of way. Not, like, there's no hope to make no. it where he's not guilty. No, especially with a confession. You just yeah. can't. No, it's <coughs> impossible. Right. So, after that, there's not much more you can do for the trial. So, mm-hmm. the jury leaves to deliberate. They only deliberate for an hour and 10 minutes. <laughs> That's all they need. And they come back and announce that they find him guilty on all counts. He's convicted of capital murder. And then for the sentencing, he was sentenced to death. Which. For all that, I feel like I'm is not surprised. Valid. I'm not surprised that he was for sentenced For all to that death. and a man to state I'm glad I was caught. I was getting tired. Like, that would make me feel like if he wasn't caught, he would absolutely continue. Yeah. Like, there was no stopping And I think when you know that, I think it is important to weigh out. Is it worth life in prison or not? So, anyway, he was sentenced to death. Um, while in prison in 2004, he confessed that on December 13th, 1997, that he broke into a home, took a knife from a butcher block in the kitchen and stabbed a little boy to death and then scuffled with a woman. And these details corroborated the account of Julia Ray Harper, who was initially convicted for the murder of her son. Oh, wow. And then acquitted in 2006. So he got a woman like I'm not saying this like kudos to him, but like. He stuck on his train of confessions. I'm glad he did. And got her out. I can't imagine for her. From 1997 to 2006. Wow. People thought she murdered her own son. And the thing about when people, even if they go to trial and don't get convicted, there's a group of people out there that still think you did it. Yep. Like, what's his face in the um, Atlanta bombings in the 90s? Uh Uh-huh. 
where, you know, the evidence was insurmountable that it was like that, the guy that actually did it. Mm -hmm. But there are still people out there. He like lived his life kind of like dodging that. Um, what's the word? I don't know. Just people like bullying him and harass harassment, right. harassment. Yeah. Um, thinking that he was the actual bomber. Um, you know what's crazy is the in the Atlanta bombings, the bomb that went off at oh god, what was it? It was like the bomb was in a dumpster, and I forget because mm-hmm. I know that uh, he targeted a an abortion clinic, and that he also targeted um, like a gay club or a gay bar. Mm-hmm. I think it was the gay bar. I'm not quite sure. My, me and my parents lived very close to there. And literally the day before, my dad had dumped our garbage out in that same dumpster. <gasps> oh. And he was oh, like thinking, creepy. I think, I think he said he was like, it, I forget why either like the dumpsters were full or it was a thing where we just didn't have access to the dumpsters at our apartment complex, but he had to literally put our trash bags in the back trunk and then drive it to the nearest dumpster. And that was the one that was closest to our apartment. And then literally 24 hours later, my parents are watching the news and they were like, we were just fucking there. Yikes. Yeah. Oh, what a weird connection. Yeah. And it's like, oh, my God, like, you know, was the bomb already there when (laughs) I don't know, you know, like when they dumped the garbage, it's just, yeah. Anyways, crazy. I just learned that because we had watched the I think it was an FX TV miniseries that covered that. Mm -hmm. We watched it last summer and my parents were like, yeah, no, that, you know, that happened. And I'm like, wicked what? Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, the 90 the I think it was the 96 Olympics, yeah. That that was happening, wow. yeah. That's incredible. Mhm. Anywho, sorry, distracted. No. It's fine. It's fine. I'm actually almost at the end here. Okay. Um cuz the next part is he died. So Oh, okay. Uh, January 3rd, 2014, a Del Rio judge set his execution date for April 3rd, 2014, um, and his death sentence was carried out at the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville. Um, When asked if he would like to make a final statement, he replied, no. As a lethal dose of the pentobarbital was administered, he took a few deep breaths, closed his eyes, and began to snore. And then less than a minute later, he stopped moving. 13 minutes later, at 627, he was pronounced dead and Crystal Searles and members of both the Harris and the Perez families attended the execution. Oh, wow. Um, and as an adult, um, Searles, uh, Crystal Searles has stated that he's dead to her, um, that it makes her really thankful. That's what he did. He didn't ever bring her down at all. And that, um, she was, this was in an interview. She was crying. She mm-hmm. said, these are happy tears. I'm just glad to be here. Oh, so she's very much a survivor. Yeah. Very strong human being. Fuck. Yeah. 
And that is my story on Crystal Searles. Wow. Very, very impressive young lady. Incredibly. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you for telling that. That was really well told. Now I, we're going to move on to the paranormal. Okay, I need this. Thank you. <laughs> and like we're on this um, roll of like haunted mansions kind of. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, let's keep it going. I actually didn't have that in mind, but I realized like, oh yeah, great. Another like haunted estate. But I was thinking like. I love that because. My next, I already have my next paranormal topic. It's not a haunted mansion. It's a haunted chair. Oh, fuck yeah. That's cool. So I feel like it still goes. It's, it's in a house. <laughs> um, next, we'll have like a haunted settee. <laughs> um, okay. So I actually um, thought this was cool to do because we recently, I mean, by the time this episode comes out, it's going to be March. But last month we had President's Day, which mm -hmm. was more recently to when we're actually recording this. Um, so I thought like, oh, this could be, this could be cool to cover. Um, and also Black History Month. We'll get to that. Mm -hmm. So I'm covering the hauntings at Mount Vernon. And for those of you who don't know, Mount Vernon is an American landmark, and it's the former plantation and home of George Washington, the president, the first president of the United States, and of course, um, the home of his wife, Martha. Mm -hmm. So the estate is on the banks of the Potomac River in Fairfax County, Virginia. It is located south of Washington, D.C. in Alexandria, Virginia, and is across the river from Prince George's County, Maryland. In 1674, John Washington, and this is uh, George Washington's great-grandfather, um, John Washington and his friend Nicholas Spencer came into possession of the land from which Mount Vernon Plantation would be built. Um, and it actually was originally known by its Native American name, Epsiwasson. Oh, sorry. Epsiwasson. Epsiwasson. Okay. Yeah, and I, they actually did keep that name and refer to the land as that for a bit. But um, ownership kind of pinballed, you know, and passed down through the generations between Washington, John Washington's descendants as well as um, Spencer's descendants. But it did um, finally land in the hands of George Washington's half-brother, Lawrence, in 1739. So Lawrence died in 1752. And his will stipulated that his widow should own a life estate in Mount Vernon, the remainder of it falling to his half-brother, George. Um, George Washington was actually already living at Mount Vernon at this time and probably managing the plantation himself. But Lawrence's widow and Fairfax remarried into the Lee family and she moved out. Um, and then following the death of Lawrence and Anne's only surviving child in 1754, George, as executor of his brother's estate, leased his sister-in-law's estate, and then upon the death of his sister-in-law Anne in 1761, he succeeded to the remainder interest, and he was then the sole owner of the property. So, been in the family a long time, 
That's how it mm-hmm. gets finally into George Washington's hands. Um, in 1758, Washington began the first of two major additions and improvements by raising the house to two and a half stories. The second expansion was begun during the 1770s, shortly before the outbreak of the Revolutionary War. Hamilton, anybody? Um, (laughs) This is the time in history that we're talking about. Washington had rooms added to the north and south ends, unifying the whole with the addition of the cupola and two-story piazza overlooking the Potomac River. It's a beautiful estate. It's beautiful. Um, and then there, by the final expansion, that increased the, the mansion to 20 run rooms and a living area, a total of 11,028 square feet. Yikes. Ginormous. That space. Ginormous. Nobody. A school. <laughs> an apartment building. Um, now, this is where we have to address who else was living here. And who else had, you know, history here? The great majority of the work was performed by black slaves and artisans. The mansion was built in a loose Palladian style per Wikipedia. So Palladian architecture, you know, I always love getting into the architecture of stuff. Um, (laughs) It was a European architectural style that was inspired by a Venetian architect, Andrea Palladio, who was, he lived from like 1508 to 1580. So already a while ago, but his work, his architectural designs came into fashion during the 18th century. Um, And it was, so it was kind of like this evolution of his original concepts. Mm -hmm. Palladio's work was strongly based in symmetry, perspective, um, you see a lot of uh, parallels between his style of architecture and the temple architecture of the ancient Greeks and Romans. So it's very kind of like neoclassical. Uh-huh. Um, and also just very kind of like Washington, D.C., because a lot of these buildings were built around this time were or slash were inspired by this time when our country oh. was being founded. I just looked up a picture. Yeah. I I usually include like a picture in my notes, but I totally forgot to put that in this Google Doc. Google is, that's what it's for. Yeah, that's what it is for. I got it. But yeah, so from the 17th century, Palladio's interpretation of classical architecture was adapted to the style known as Palladianism. um, And it continued to develop until the end of the 18th century. So... Now, enough with that fun tidbit. So Mount Vernon, which, by the way, I forgot to include this in my notes. So the land and the estate was actually known as Epsuasin for a long Mm -hmm. time until it came under ownership by George's half-brother, Lawrence. Mm -hmm. So he, like, joined the army and he went off and um, his commanding officer was something last name Vernon. And when he came back, from his service, he just decided to rename the estate after his commanding officer. I guess it was like a big mentor to him or something to that effect. Must have been somebody special love. to him. <laughs> Honestly, we love a queer story in history just like hiding there. And, Maybe. You know, there's a good chance. <laughs> Honestly, this Dang. is total speculation. It, it, we're just saying <laughs> it's possible. Um, we don't know, though. 
But yeah, definitely was somebody very important to him. So that was when Mount Vernon was renamed to what it's currently called. And it did remain George Washington's home for the rest of his life. So as a young man, Washington accepted slavery. But after the Revolutionary War, he had a change of heart. He finally started to question it. Um, and even though he, you know, swung the opposite way in his, you know, opinions about slavery, he did avoid the issue publicly because he believed that there would be, you know, that debates over slavery could tear apart this new fragile nation. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like I, I get it, but yeah. So, I mean, you know, he did um, work to redeem himself. Like he did own slaves. Let's be very clear. His house mm-hmm. is a plantation. Um, but especially at the end of his life, um, he worked to, I guess, make things more as fair as possible to his slaves as he could. Um, His most public anti-slavery statement pretty much happened after his death in his will. He wrote his will several months before his death in December 1799. And in it, he ordered that his enslaved workers be freed upon his wife's death. So... Why not after yours? I don't know. Um, right. Maybe he just like wanted his wife to like be taken care of, but can't you just He's like, like pay? I'm against slavery, but like not entirely. Yeah, like let's be real. Seventy percent. He's not. He's not about to write the Emancipation Proclamation, but no. Um, he. I mean, he started towards the end there, like turning his way. You know, turning the other way. Um, but there was a little bit of an issue. So before Martha's death, um, I'll get into the issue, uh, but before the Martha's death and in accordance with state law, George Washington stipulated in his will that elderly slaves or those who were too sick to work were to be supported throughout their lives by his estate. Children without parents or those whose families were too poor or indifferent to see to their education were to be apprenticed to masters and mistresses who would teach them reading, writing, and a useful trade until they were ultimately freed at the age of 25. But still under a master. But still under a master until age 25 is when they could be freed. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, this act, like this push to free his slaves actually only applied to fewer than half of the people in slavery at Mount Vernon. And this is where kind of the issue lies. So of the 317 slaves at Mount Vernon in 1799, a little less than half, 123 individuals actually belonged to George Washington. Those owned by the... He owned 123 people? Yes. I know that... I know I understand slavery, but it just feels so weird to own that people. That was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was fucked up. And those are just the people he owned. He had another I can't do the math, you know, there was a total of 317 slaves right. working his property. Um 
So the rest of them that weren't owned by George Washington were owned by the Custis estate. Now, Martha did have a first husband who died. And his oh. name was, I don't know, something Custis. Like, that was his last name. Mm-hmm. So that the rest of them were actually inherited by Martha. And then mm-hmm. at her death, they would be passed on to her grandchildren. Because that was stipulated in Custis's will. Right. Um, many uh, Washington and Custis enslaved people had also married and formed families together. So that also posed an issue where like, okay, so some of us are freed, but like my cousin might not be freed. And it was just, it got, Mm -hmm. it was messy. Um, For them, separation from loved ones, tainted celebrations of newfound freedom. Yeah. You know, Uh, neither George nor Martha Washington could free the Custis slaves by law. And Martha actually feared that her deceased husband's slaves might kill her to gain their freedom. So Martha finally, like, worked a legal maneuver and she was able to sign a deed of manumission for them in, in December 1800, which basically is manumission is just signing their freedom. Mm-hmm. And so that was a year after George Washington's death. Abstracts of the Fairfax County, Virginia court records uh, record this transaction. So it did take place and the slaves received their freedom officially um, on January 1st, 1801. All right. So to Mr. President Washington's death on December 12th, 1799, Washington spent several hours riding over the plantation. It was snowing. There was hail. I mean, it was freezing. Like, it was all kinds of precipitation. Like, rain, hail, snow, sleet, the whole nine yards. And he ate his supper later that evening, and he didn't change out from his wet clothes for, like, a while that evening. That's weird. I feel like toxic masculinity. He's probably like, I can rough it. I don't know. But unfortunately... Ugh, weird. Okay. So the following day, George Washington wakes up with a severe sore throat. Now, retrospectively, people believe it could have been um, uh, Quincy, which is kind of like a, an infection behind the tonsils, mm-hmm. um, or a acute epiglottitis, which... Ooh, what's that again? Uh, oh, that's um, that's when like the that little wind like opening that separates that makes sure like when you swallow it doesn't go into your lungs. Oh, uh huh. So it's basically an inflammation of that little like flap at the base of your tongue that prevents food from entering the trachea or the windpipe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um. So they both have very similar symptoms. Um, because he, one of his biggest symptoms, other than like the severe sore throat, the pain, was that his voice was very hoarse as the day progressed. Mm-hmm. Doctors were called, and in good 18th century fashion, they recommended bloodletting. Sure. Uh-huh. But even like even Martha was like, um, I'm not sure if that's super effective. Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, the doctors compromised, like, okay, well, like, we'll just make a small incision. 
But, and here comes toxic masculinity, I'm saying, Washington insisted that they draw more blood. He's like, I can take it, draw more. And this may and probably worsened his ability to recuperate from his illness. Right. And could have also just led to more infection. Yeah. I just, man, like, honestly, the modern medicine we have has not actually been around for so long. For the longest time, mm-hmm. we knew nothing. Yeah. It, it, it astounds me. Anyways, so all the available medical treatments failed to improve his condition. And he did die at Mount Vernon at around 10 p.m. on December 14th, 1799. And he was 67 years old. So was it technically by infection that he died? Um, I, what did they say? Well, okay, so the, they're Quincy and epiglottitis. They're both different kinds of infections. Right. So historians believe, like, we can never know for sure because obviously the doctors were like, oh, let's just make him bleed. They didn't know that much other right. than, like, seeing his physical symptoms. Um, they probably just thought he had, like, a really bad cold. Uh, he most likely died of of the infection that was already going on in his throat. Um, On December 18th, a funeral was held at Mount Vernon where his body was interred. Congress actually passed a joint resolution to construct a marble monument in the U.S. Capitol for his body, an initiative supported by his wife, Martha. Um, But in December 1800, the United States House passed an appropriations bill of $200,000 to build the mausoleum. It was like this pyramid. The base was 100 feet, like 100 square feet. But Southerners wanted his body to remain at Mount Vernon. They wanted the pride of the nation to stay in the South. Um, and they defeated the measure. In accordance with his will, Washington was entombed in a family crypt he had built upon first inheriting the estate. So, I mean... I guess it was what he wanted anyways, was to stay home. Um, This crypt was in disrepair by 1799 when he died. So Washington's will also requested that a new larger tomb be built. Um, This was not executed until a few decades later in 1831. (laughs) So like, what is that? 60, almost 70 years after or (laughs) his death? Wait, right? No, I can't, I can't do math. That's like 32 years. Oh, you see, okay. if Gavin ever listens to this, I'm never living this down. I'm the worst. You, you ever watch um, Friends with Benefits with Mila Kunis and Justin Timberlake? I, I've seen it once. Well, Justin Timberlake's character is like shit at math, like where it's astounding. <laughs> and that's me. I mean, me too. No, but like to a different. I won't even try like, to do that math. Like the scene where he's trying to calculate, like approximately calculate how tall like the fences are where they're like trying to trespass on the Hollywood sign up on the uh-huh. hill. And he's like, so that means the fences are 91 feet tall. Wait, no, that can't make sense. Hold on. <laughs> Mila Kunis is just looking at him like, you poor thing. <laughs> It's just so bad. I'm, listen, I'm actually extremely good at like paper math. I can't do anything in the mind. Don't ask yeah. me. There's a reason why I decided mm-hmm. art is my path. 
Um, okay, sorry. Moving on. Um, but yeah, so, and then this, uh, this execution of the renovation of the crypt happened in 1831. It was actually nearly 100 years after his birth. Okay. Um, the need for a new tomb was confirmed when an unsuccessful attempt was made to steal his skull. He actually, the, the grave robber actually, okay. he actually, um, like stole a different person's skull thinking it was George Washington's, but it was like <laughs> family of George Washington. Um, Jeez. but they're like, yeah, we're going to have to increase the security and just like the integrity of this crypt. Yeah. Um, a joint congressional committee committee in early 1832, debated the removal of Washington's body from Mount Vernon to a crypt in the Capitol. So they were pushing to bring him to the Capitol again. Southern opposition was intense, exacerbated by an ever-growing rift between North and South. Mm, Do we know what's brewing? Mm -hmm. It's the Civil War. And so in 1831, the bodies of George and Martha Washington, because she's dead by now, along with other members of the family, were moved from the old crypt to the new family tomb, like the schmancy renovated one. On October 7th, 1837, Washington's remains encased in a lead inner casket were transferred from the closed tomb to a sarcophagus presented by John Struthers of Philadelphia. And it was placed on the right side of the gateway to the tomb and a similar structure was provided for Martha's remains, which was placed on the left. So they kind of just like flank the entrance. Mm Mm-hmm to this fancy new crypt. Other members of the Washington family are interred in an inner vault behind the vestibule containing the sarcophagi. Okay. Um, Now, preservation of this estate. Following his death in 1799, under the ownership of several successive generations of the family, the estate progressively declined as revenues were insufficient to maintain it adequately. In 1858, the house's historical importance was recognized and it was saved from ruin by the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. Um, This philanthropic organization uh, acquired it together with part of the Washington property estate. So it's it was able to um, avoid, you know, the damage suffered by many other plantation houses during the American Civil War. Um, and Mount Vernon was restored. Um, it was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1960, which is so surprising that it took that long because, like, our first president literally is entombed there and grew up there. Right. I'm surprised that it took that long. Um, and it is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. It is still owned and maintained in trust by the Mount Vernon Ladies Association and is open every day of the year. Um, but allowing the public to see the estate isn't actually new to the estate as of the ownership by Mount Vernon Ladies Association. Um, it was actually a 200-year-old tradition started by George Washington himself. Like, he invited anyone who wanted to come to see his estate to come. And he's um, quoted by saying, actually, he wrote this in 1794, quote, I have no objection to any sober or orderly persons gratifying their curiosity in viewing the buildings, gardens, etc. about Mount Vernon, end quote. 
So he was like, yeah, come on by. Check out my crib. Like there was a time period in the 1700s where that, I wouldn't say that was typical, but it was done when it came to like really big houses. Like, Well, you also think these are people that culturally are coming from the influence of the British where there's, you know, right. nobility that owned these grand houses. And all those people did was go back and forth from house to house. Right. And, and was, people, you know, were obviously allowed from the public to come to those houses. Like mm-hmm. I was going to say, yeah. an exa- like a fictional example is Pride and Prejudice, where Elizabeth oh, yeah. Bennett gets to go view. Exactly. Pemberley. Pemberley. Mm-hmm. And, and that that was that's it just was a thing that that happened. Yeah. During that time. I might get major hate from this but no one finds it curious that suddenly she really likes Mr. Darcy after she sees his grand house I'm sorry like look at the timeline like everyone's like oh this grand love story they were assholes to each other well I know but it's like if I were the like if I were the author Mm -hmm. I would have like timed it a little differently like um, well, this was her seeing him in his comfort zone, which is a little bit different. I guess I think I get it because, in my view, Graham is essentially Mr. Darcy without the money. Okay, he kind of comes off as an asshole to a lot of people who don't know him. Mm-hmm. But when you get to know him on his comfort level, he's absolutely not. Yeah. But he has to be in his comfort zone. He is a much different person at home than he is out in public. He has severe anxiety, and it can come off very asshole-ish, mm-hmm. if that's a word. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean, like, no, if anyone did, like, see him in person, I'm not saying he would be an asshole. I'm just saying <laughs> the air of him may come off that way. Well, he's, he's like, more, he's more, um, like, aloof. He's very, like, way more reserved and keeps to himself. And sometimes people mm-hmm. just with that, they that that rubs off wrong to them. Yeah, they've I've had people say like, you know, when I first met him, he just seemed like he thought he was better than everyone else. I was like, no, he wasn't dying of anxiety, but like that's just what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I feel like I'm gonna get I may I may get some hate. I'm sorry. Like mm-hmm. Pride and Prejudice is a nice story, but I'm not like the hugest fan of it for some reason i like the book i enjoyed it movie with kira knightley was entertaining um i prefer the a and e version oh nice the 95 one yes yes uh what's his face colin firth colin firth mm-hmm. and a wet white t-shirt yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yes sorry okay so now that we know the history of this place and where it's at all that good stuff. Let's get into the fun stuff, the hauntings. Yay. So for decades, there have been reports by visitors and staff at George Washington's home of supernatural activity. Now, I will relay several different accounts. Um, Maybe I'm not in the know, but they refer to a lot of these staff members as interpreters. Okay. Which, I don't know why it sounds off to me. Like... I, I, whenever I think of like museums, I think of like like Dawson's or historian or something like that. So it's if you're like me and you're like, what the hell is an interpreter? I think it's just a staff member, like a historian or like tour guide okay. kind of person. 
knowledgeable person that works at the estate. Okay, so the first story I have for you, though, is the ghost of George Washington himself. Oh. Um, he has been supposedly haunting his bedroom for many years. So in the early years of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, when the ladies were actually living at Mount Vernon, like they slept in the mansion, and some of them, you know, were assigned his room. Um, the, the following account was reported in the New York World newspaper um, in 1890. So I'm going to read this out because that's, this is like the only kind of, you know, record of this encounter, mm-hmm. this paranormal encounter. But hey, like as early as 1890. Quote, of course, the most interesting of all the bedrooms is the one belonging to the immortal George and in which he died. In it is the original four-poster bed whereon Washington passed in his last moments. This historic chamber is haunted. Of that, there would seem to be little doubt. Many people within recent years have slept in it, and they declare that they were awed by the viewless presence of the nation's first president. They deny earnestly that the notion is based on imagination. Few of these temporary occupants have been able to get any sleep. Obviously, it is one thing to see a ghost and quite another thing to feel one, to be aware of the nearness of a strange and brooding specter. They all agree that Washington visits his chamber, uh, that visits his chamber in the still watches of the, oh, oh, sorry, okay, weird sentence. They all agree that Washington (laughs) visits his chamber in the still watches of the night. Mrs. William Beale and a friend of hers spent a night at Mount Vernon. At their own request, they were permitted to occupy Washington's bedroom. In the middle of the night, they were awakened by the sputtering of their candle. They had had lighted one super, super surreptitiously and were burning it in the middle of a basin of water. Fancied they saw a spook. It went out with a noise and they began to feel alarmed. Mrs. Beale said to her friend, You are on the side of the bed where Washington died. The other replied, no, I'm not. He died on your side. (laughs) Finally, they decided that the question was doubtful and there was no more sleep for them that night. They got up, dressed themselves and sat around until morning, scared by every squeak of the windows. And at one moment were sure they heard Washington's sward clank distinctly in a corner. So... There you go. So his bedroom. So his bedroom. bedroom. Yeah, he's like, what the fuck are you doing in my bed? (laughs) (laughs) All right. And in this next account, there's the woman on the stairs. So during a typical work day, um, and this happened around the 1980s, while stationed in the central passage, something caught an interpreter's eye. She saw the figure of an unidentified woman dressed in 18th century clothing on the stairs. The figure was carrying a large punch bowl filled with a flower arrangement. And the figure disappeared upon reaching the bottom of the staircase. Very simple, short and sweet. And now this one, the angry gentleman. An interpreter was in the central passage on a particularly crowded day in the spring or summer. Um, This also happened in the 1980s. She thought she heard someone in the room behind her. Thinking that a visitor had gotten into the area by going under the rope barriers, she entered the little parlor to basically shoo them out. But to her surprise, she found an older gentleman 
He was sporting a large mustache. He was dressed in late 19th or 20th century clothing with his sleeves rolled up and secured with garters. When he saw that he had her attention, he, so he, it's this an, in, an intelligent. This is not mm-hmm. like one of those like stuck on a record loop. This was an intelligent yeah. uh, ghost. He shouted at her, what the hell is going on here? Referencing to the fact that it, they're like the state was super noisy. There was like a school group. There was other groups. It was just like very loud and boisterous in like mm-hmm. the main like lobby area. And the interpreter talked back to him, telling him um, that she was trying to get them to quiet down. And the man disappeared in front of her eyes. She later saw a portrait of the gentleman in question, who was Colonel Harrison Howell Dodge, Mount Vernon's director for about 50 years until his death in the late 1930s. I love that's what he came there for. And he's what like, the hell what is going on? <laughs> he's like, get your shit together. I ran, th- I ran in a tighter ship when I was alive. <laughs> All right. And this is, an, this is another kind of short and sweet one. An interpreter was standing in the central passage. A lot of a lot of activity in the central passage. Yeah. Again, 1980s. She felt something brush up past her, um, coming out of the little parlor. Looking down, all she could see were the feet and bottoms of the skirts of a young girl in an 18th century dress running across the central passage. Which, by the way, this has happened to me where all I could see was the bottom half of somebody's body. Like, mm-hmm. as far as their apparition. And right. it's fucking creepy. Like, it's one mm-hmm. thing to see something that you know is a ghost. It's another to see it, like, not even be complete. Yeah. <laughs> Just, like, a pair of legs walking around. Super creepy. Yeah. Um, and this is another uh, paranormal story that could possibly be George Washington, you know, doing his thing around his house. So, a head guard... I mean, I guess like the head security guard um, said that these events were not a one time incident, but happened quite often. It was just like on a regular basis. And he worked there from the 80s to the 90s. And this happened throughout his time working here. So quite frequently, an alarm would go off in the stable of the estate. Um, Then in about the time that it would take him to. Um, go and check on the stable. In the mansion, an alarm would go off in the Washington bedchamber. Um, guards dispatched to check out the situation and found nothing out of the ordinary. And this happened several times. And the security guard's explanation or his like conjecture is that General Washington was coming home he made his horse comfortable, put him up in the stable, and oh. he ma- is making his way up to his room. So it's like this like repeated uh, routine. Right. And then there's the sound of the clanging keys. Mm-hmm. So a member of Mount Vernon's security department recalls unexplainable activities that occurred in 2012. And they go on to say... Quote, my, experience, my first experience with something that I cannot explain occurred in the mansion during the early years of the candlelight tours. The event took place on the anniversary of General Washington's death around 10.30 p.m. After the house had been cleared, I locked myself in. It was my responsibility to check the alarms for their proper positioning. 
When I was in the mansion study, I heard a heavy set of keys being walked across the floor in the Washington bedroom directly above. As I approached the back stairs to go up to the Washington bedroom, the sound of the keys abruptly stopped. General Washington was well known for his heavy set of keys and that they could be heard as he walked through the house. Tobias Lear, the general secretary, is known to have taken the keys from the general's pocket upon his death and turned the keys over to his enslaved manservant, Christopher Shields. Un- oh. End quote. Okay. So, you know, just these heavy clanging keys. And then there's the yellow room. A supervisor in 2006 from the History Interpretation Department recalls her first encounter. Quote, My first encounter with a ghost occurred in the yellow room of the Mount Vernon mansion in 2006. I was a supervisor in the history interpretation department. Supervisors clear and lock the mansion after checking and rechecking for assurance that no one has been left in the mansion after hours. After letting the last interpreter out the study door, I walked up the back stairs, past the Washington's bedchamber, and into the yellow room. I suddenly felt myself being pushed feeling the pressure of someone's hands on the back of my shoulders. I turned to look and no one was there. It was obvious I wasn't wanted in the yellow bedchamber. This happened several more times and I decided I would not go back upstairs if alone. I invited another interpreter to stay with me and travel the back stairs to the yellow room. Nothing happened. The next time when I was alone, I was once again pushed through the room. To keep this from being, dis- uh, from being disturbed, I felt it was best that I not use the back stairs, but to remove my shoes and cross through the downstairs ba- bedchamber to the central passage and lock the door for the evening, end quote. So oh. someone didn't like her specifically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was sucked to know that like a ghost doesn't like you. Yeah, there's nothing you could do about that. No. Well, there's often nothing you can do about anyone really like disliking you, but <laughs> a ghost. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder, like, what have they been spying me doing that they don't like me? <laughs> right? Do they watch me all the time, yeah. or just when I'm here? Do they just not like the way that I like, you know, always bring a tuna sandwich to lunch? <laughs> <laughs> that bitch with the tuna again. Um. All right. So there's also activity at the tomb. So this also occurred in 2006, um, and an interpreter explains what happened to her at George Washington's tomb. Quote, the first time I experienced this ghost was Easter morning in 2006 when I was scheduled to open Washington's tomb. It was early and very quiet, and there was no one around. The guests had not made their way from the mansion. I stood in front of the open door, and I saw an ectoplasm in the far right corner of the tomb. When I moved... The ectoplasm moved. I watched as it became a blur in my vision and it continued to move around. I took a photo that showed a streak of light through the blur. The second photo showed the blur. As soon as voices of the guests coming down the hill could be heard, the ectoplasm disappeared. This happened on three different occasions. End quote. I can't not think of Ghostbusters when I hear it. Right? I just like think of like that goop (laughs) seeping through the walls. (laughs) um okay we've got a few more got three more okay now um this account is from a member of mount vernon's youth programs 
and um, she recounts her experience. Quote, originally, my office was located in the Teacher Resource Center of the Education Center, which is now B. Washington. It was after hours and the staff had left. I gathered my coat and bag and set them on the table facing my desk. As I turned to put on my coat, I saw a female figure standing in the door of my office. She was dressed in clothing from the Civil War period, and she was totally gray. Her complete body and clothing were gray. She stood in the doorway, looking straight ahead without moving. Her stare was very stern. It happened quickly, and then she was gone. There was no doubt in my mind that Anne Pamela Cunningham, founder of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, had been in the room. I stayed for a while, sitting quietly as I listened to the noises of cabinet doors opening and closing in hands-on history. But when I looked to see who was there, the room was empty. End quote. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Creepy. Also, yeah. another, like, instance of, like, apparitions not being able to, like, manifest, like, their colors. Like, she just came out monochromatic. Yeah. That's all yeah. she could, you know... All, all she could do at the time. <laughs> um, now, this next one is an account from like two th- 2010 or the two- 2010s. Okay. Um, one night, a couple of security officers were driving around the Mount Vernon grounds uh, very late at night. And they saw a little girl on the path ahead of them. So they stopped. Hello. Then the girl appeared right next to them. <laughs> They quickly spun around and drove away as fast as they could. And that's the end of that story. <laughs> I feel like... I would have done the same. Like, holy fuck. Could you be creepier? are the best because they're the creepiest. But on top of that, too, like, to not only be the creepiest kind of ghost, but then to do, like, the creepiest ghost move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is, this is the last story, paranormal story I have. Uh, okay. This is a character interpreter. Uh, telling her experience inside the mansion that happened more recently in 2017. Um, She goes on to say, quote, I've worked at Mount Vernon on and off since 2004. I most recently returned in January 2017. The estate was abuzz with the latest spooky story. On December 15th, 2016, some strange sounds were were heard coming from the third floor, and there had been reports of the temperature dropping by 20 degrees. When the tale was shared with me, I was determined to see if it would happen again. On December 14th, the anniversary of the general's death, I was on the third floor waiting for some haunting, but nothing happened. However, when I returned the next night, the vibe in the area had changed. Upon looking into the southwest bedchamber, I noticed an electric candle was on. That's strange, I thought. It was dark last night. Had collections come and turned it on? Not likely. The third floor isn't open to the public. Then it hit me. George Washington died on December 14th, 1799. And the next day, Martha Washington shut up the bedroom they shared and moved to the southwest bedchamber. Apparently, she's still marking that sad day. End quote. So that is the hauntings of Mount Vernon. Um, if you'd like to learn more about Mount Vernon or to visit it, maybe plan a visit someday, um, 
maybe even make a donation to the organization. It's going to help, you know, to continue to preserve it um, as an American historical site. You can visit mountvernon.org. That's M-O-U-N-T-V-E-R-N-O-N.org. And I want to say, while George Washington is the primary figure associated with Mount Vernon, we cannot forget about the many enslaved people that worked on the yes. plantation. Yeah. Mount Vernon's website actually has a really great landing page illustrating the lives of the slaves that lived there. And I highly encourage you to view the page. Um, so when you go to mountvernon.org in the navigation bar, hover over George Washington, and then there's a drop down menu, and then click on slavery. The page includes biographies of some of the people in bondage at the estate. Mm-hmm. Like there were hundreds, but I think they feature like 20 of them. Um, mm-hmm. And you can learn about just how they lived their day to day life, what they ate, what kind of housing did they have, their clothing, what their family life was like, um, you know, what it looked like to be a slave at Mount Vernon and much, much more like it's. A pretty, it's not obviously exhaustive, but it's a very robust right. page that um, lends respect to those enslaved at Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm. And that's that's my story. That's my paranormal story. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, I was surprised to usually like I I um I hear of these haunted places and I'm, I'm trying to look for accounts and I have a hard time. Right finding yeah. various accounts like people usually just generalize like oh there's footsteps and whispers and dark shadows right. but never like i just i want th- those stories like specific instances yeah. and boy did this one deliver yeah a lot mm-hmm. for sure so um happy belated president's day and happy belated black history month yes perfect yeah thank you you're welcome (laughs) well that is our episode for today thank you to all our listeners for tuning in we hope you enjoyed it we'll be back next week with our witchy episode um if you'd like to follow us um on the social medias we are at the new witches pretty much everywhere Um, please rate and review us on your listening platform. Um, if you have that feature, if not at the very least, click follow or subscribe. We really appreciate it. It helps our visibility. Um, it also helps us if you leave a review, it helps us know what we're doing right Mm -hmm. and what we're doing wrong. And we are very open to constructive criticism. Um, and if you'd like to, another way to support the podcast, uh, you can become a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash the new witches as a member for as little as $5 and our tiers go up from there. You get exclusive benefits um, that we only give to our Patreon members like bonus episodes every month. You get to vote on episode topics and you're added to our close friends lists on our Instagram stories and as well as you gain access to our private Facebook group where you can connect with other listeners of the podcast. Um, If you'd like to submit for our upcoming uh, listener stories episode, we do that every 13th of the month. Go to our website, thenewwitches.com. Go to our contact page for the submission form. 
You can also email your story or question in directly to us at thenewwitches at gmail.com. And if you'd like to phone it in so that we can feature your, your voice on the podcast, which is so cool, we have a Google voicemail box and you have up to three minutes. It'll cut you off at three minutes to leave your story or question in our voicemail. So the phone number for that is 707-559-8111. That is our show. I'm Maria. I'm Laura. And you've been listening to The New Witches. Uh, Stay witchy. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye. Bye.